Before we begin today's episode, we would like to thank our sponsor, Swanshaw, the UK's finest purveyor of kitchens and shopfronts alike. Please consider visiting Swanshaw on Instagram. You can find them under at Swanshaw. Now to today's episode. and welcome to the Therapy Files. This is our seventh episode. I'm obviously joined this evening with my colleague Callum, as always. Hey guys. How are you, Callum? Are you well? I'm always very well. Fabulous. And also, would you like to tell the listener about our guest this evening? Certainly, we have a wonderful guest and her name is Nina and her artwork is amazing, isn't it, Craig? It is phenomenal. I think we spoke on Instagram and I think that was the first thing I told you about Nina, her artwork is like sublime fabulous stuff um so this evening we are going to be discussing relationships and consent kind of handy given that valentine's day has just passed wouldn't you say absolutely absolutely i think it's a massively massively important thing that we need to look at in in all aspects of life and human interaction really isn't it absolutely hi nina how are you are you well hi uh, thank you for having me oh you're very welcome would you like to introduce yourself to the listener because they might not know where you're from? Yes. Yeah, so um, to explain my accent, I am from Switzerland and um, I'm 26 years old and I use my artwork on Instagram to kind of process a healing of trauma in regard of like consent that hasn't been given to me. Um, yeah. And I'm looking forward to talk to you about that. And we are very much looking forward to talking to you as well. Right. Well, without further ado, you should uh, probably kick things off with maybe the types of relationships. Did you want to cover that, Callum, to start with? And then we Yeah, can... I mean, yeah, of course, I, I can certainly lead into it. Um, obviously, we can, I won't list, you can list some off if you want to, Craig, as well. But, but um, I think many people don't realise that there are various forms of relationships that do, agree, do exist between humans. And I think kind of the, the most common ones that we know, obviously, are kind of partners in terms of boyfriend, girlfriend, mm-hmm. uh, boyfriend, boyfriend. You know, it depends on, depending on the gender that you uh, or do or do not identify with. But I think it's also what, I mean, I don't know about Ukraine, but I think it's also about the ones that we don't hear of as, as often or may not be as, as commonly acknowledged. I don't know if you want to list a couple of them off. Yeah, I will do. So some of the relationship that we have come up with to talk about today, spouse, that is together by marriage. We've come up with the idea of monogamy. Uh, that's where two parties are only sexually intimate with one another. There's polygamy, where both parties engage in separate sexual relationships as well with each other. And just while I'm on the topic, I'm just looking at my bookcase and I just wonder if I had book about that that I've read recently. I can't see it. But anyway, it's called Easier Ways to Say I Love You by Lucy Fry. I have read that recently and it's about her own personal experience of being in a polygamous relationship. And I found that really interesting to read, to be quite honest. She used to be a journalist. So I just, I got that delivered through one of my regular book delivery things you know it's a box and you get a book given to you and you don't know what the book is it was one of those types of things but I thought that was also really important to read about different types of relationships in terms of can also like add maybe because you only mentioned like poly um polygamy right polygamy yeah 
Yeah. Polygamy. So it's like when both when both partners in relationship engage in like different se- uh, multiple sexual encounters with other people as well as with themselves. Mm-hmm. But there is also polyamory, right? So yes, absolutely. Not exactly the same thing. This is like when when you are like in multiple romantic relationship at the same time with people, but this doesn't necessarily have to include sexual relationships with all of them. Mm-hmm. That's true. And polyamory isn't something we actually had on our list. So, we did not. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Bringing that to our attention. Thank you, Nina. So we also had partners as an agreed relationship where two parties are sexual with one another, but they're not married. There's also open relationship where non are married, non-married people in a relationship engage with one another. This is with one or more people, and this is agreed by both parties. There's polyandry, where the wife has one or more partners. There's polygamy, where the man has one or more wives. Um, There's casual, where a person has previous encounters with a person, but they're not an official, they're not in an official relationship. And I think perhaps I will leave the last one for you, Callum. No, thank you, thank you, Craig. So um, I had to put this on. I had to put this on on here because it's something that is um, often missed in, in many aspects of life, and obviously, many people may or may not know who've read my book. Um, I am actually identify as asexual. I do, however, engage in sexual intimacy, but mine's much more lower. So a lot of people, when they think of asexuality, they think of people who don't engage whatsoever in sex, which is absolutely true. Um, but it can also be somebody who has just basically a lower sex drive or a less of an interest in sexual encounters. And people do very commonly have asexual relationships where people, where, as I've written down, two people may engage in little or no sexual activity whatsoever. Yeah. Would you say there is a lot of, not, not in terms of sexual activity, but there's a lot of love in your asexual relationship regardless? Yes, yes. What is the phrase I'm thinking of? It begins with a P, platonic. That's the Platon- Oh, platonic. W- would you say there's a bit more of platonic or would you say it's equally matched i'd say i'd say probably it's equally matched however obviously with me being a father certain things have to happen in order for that process to to take place so of course I've i don't completely abstain from sexual uh, sexual encounters it's probably just less less often than most people so for me my partner is completely understandable she met me and i, I sort of explained when we were very young i was not i was i was 18 when we met she was 17 so we were both very young and i think i think kind of what took her by surprise for Nina and Craig, I think more than anything was, I think the overarching view of men is that we're masculine, we we present with testosterone, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. for, for me, I think, I think for, for probably through most of my life, but particularly in this relationship, I think it kind of at first took her by surprise. Mm, yeah, because not every man is a masculine man. And that is absolutely fine because I'm definitely not a masculine man. And that is where Callum and I share some common ground, shall we say. Is there anything you f- want to add there, Nina? I just didn't want to leave you out. But oh, no, it's fine. Uh, I, I think I've kind of always liked to look at, at this as a spectrum. So it's not like when you're asexual, this is the criteria list and you tick all those points and then you're, you can identify as asexual, right? Or as mm-hmm. bisexual or homosexual or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there are like different forms and... and different um, points on the spectrum so an asexual person i think can engage in like can totally enjoy to engage in like certain sexual activities but not in others Mm. just while we're looking at the the context of a relationship i sent you guys a little clip about 20 minutes before the meeting and i was just wondering if you wanted to share 
briefly your thoughts on that. Yeah. Do you want to go first, Nina? Uh, yeah. Do you, are you talking about the first or the second video? We're talking about the first one. So love has no labels. The one with, um, with the skeletons, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I really love about that video is that you cannot see, you can only see the skeleton of the people mm. who engage with each other and you cannot see uh, gender or sexuality or mm. um, skin color, head scarves or whatever. Yeah. And it's very hard to find moments like this in day-to-day life where we see all these like mm-hmm. outside, like whether we want um, or not, like which is our brain is kind of trained to mm. put in boxes, right? We, Absolutely. It's a natural, yeah. natural um, instinct of human beings. So um, I'm, uh, I'm fondly reminded one of my sociology lecturers back at Chester saying to me years ago in a lecture, if we remove the sides of the box, you'll find that things can pass through the box and link up with other things. And I'm just, I love that analogy that things link up and that if we remove the sides everything connects eventually and that's just as you were saying everything does connect up and people are, people can be themselves can't they and I, I don't know where I have this from whether I read it somewhere or saw it in a, in a documentary I don't know someone said like you could take any person who lives on this planet and if you talk to them you will always find one thing that you have in common like maybe it's not the religion and maybe it's not the skin color but maybe both of you are sisters to someone or both mm-hmm. of friends to someone or both of you are mothers or fathers or whatever so that we are actually like a lot more alike than we are different mm-hmm. and i think um you know i mean that's true for me as an individual with the people that i connect with i i definitely see them as themselves first and foremost but i also see them in certain roles like father brother even though i have no brothers or sisters I very much do consider, for example, Callum to be part of my family uh, because friends are the family that we choose for ourselves. Whoever said that, I don't know, but they were very right about that. And, you know, I think no matter whether it's a sexual relationship or a non-sexual relationship, I think the point is there's just many different types of relationships out there. You know, it's important to consider all of them equally. But reining myself back in, because I'm slightly diverting, do apologise, dear listener. We are actually going to be talking today about the important topic of relationships and consent. So that is particularly around sexual consent. Um, the definition that you had provided there, Callum, I think that's a really important definition. Would you like to read it out sure. and we can consider it? I'll, uh, I'll um, channel my intellectual. Um, Please do. So savisyouth.org define consent as consent in a dating relationship or casual relationship is when partners mutual, mutually agree to sexual activity. This can include hugging, kissing, touching or sex, otherwise known as intercourse. Both partners must be consenting. So dear listen, this means that it has to come from both parties. Also, just because someone consents to something one time, it does not mean that they will always consent. And again, that's from SaveUsYouth.org. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really strong definition of consent. And also, I know that we are specifically focusing on the sexual act here, but I would just like to point out that consent can exist in a non-sexual relationship as well. And there's an interesting, I have an interesting um, little bit of narrative here. When I was at university in Lancaster, 
um, this where I did my postgrad, uh, my master's degree, there was a massive hill. Going up this hill, I had to get up the hill in order to get to my department. Uh, I was quite happily one day literally going up the hill, pelting at full speed, <laughs> and somebody from behind me sort of grabbed onto my wheelchair uh, because, I mean, for those of you that don't know, I'm a wheelchair user. Obviously, you can't see me, but I can assure you I very much am. And they actually grabbed onto the back of my wheelchair and said, let me help you. And I actually said, no, thank you. I'm absolutely fine. I can do that independently. I actually had to say, no, thank you, at least five times in a raised voice before I actually was left to do it independently. Now, some might say that I was being a bit harsh on them because they were only trying to do a good deed. But actually, if I want help as a wheelchair user, I am perfectly capable of asking for it. And I think that is an idea of consent because they sort of just didn't ask for consent. They, they weren't like, did you want some help? You know, the key thing is... It upon you, basically. Yes. We help you now. Yes, absolutely. And while they might think it's a good thing, I didn't need help at that time. And it was I found it distressing because my independence was sort of taken away there. But just to make the point that consent can also exist outside of sexual relationships. And I think that's very important to like raise to the listener as well. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I think I think Craig, you know, kind of going going off what you said there. That um, I mean, obviously, obviously, one. I think what what they're doing there is not being aware of privilege, and I think I think you know it may have come from a good place, but it also is quite ableist, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. I certainly think uh, there is a lot of ableism around at the moment, um, and it can somewhat be damaging to people's understanding of disability and good. of indeed of relationships one might have with another person to pull us back onto topic. <laughs> I think it's a, I'm sorry, you go, Callum. No, 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 Nina, go ahead, go ahead. I think you made a very, very good point in like, because I, I feel sometimes that like the sexual part aside, which is talk about the society we live in, is very non-consensual because we, we all, like, or I can just talk for myself, but mm. we feel guilty when we say no to things. Like we say yes so often, although we want to say no, because it's like socially not accepted to say no. And you get an invitation, you don't want to join or all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's we're kind of raised that way. I've heard a good example once that when you raise a child and um, you tickle them, that's the right word in English, right? So that they laugh mm-hmm. and they, they tell you to stop. And we don't, you know, sometimes we don't respect that because like it's fun. We want to keep going. But this is kind of a, a very mild form of like not respecting boundaries. Mm. in an absolutely not sexual way and yeah there are tons of examples like this Mm. do you have anything to add to that as a father Callum yeah I mean I mean um obviously my daughter put you on the spot no 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 no, you're fine I mean obviously my my daughter she's she's um she's 11 months she's sorry she's 12 months she's going to be one tomorrow happy Uh, birthday Evelyn thank you Uh, (laughs) um so because she obviously her vocabulary is is wonderful, but she can't quite say yes or no. So if I ever was to tickle her or 
think I wouldn't know if it was consensual or not. Really, I could only go off her body language. That's what that's what I would have to go off. Really, if if she was was expressing some discomfort, something that's mm. what that's what I have to do is essentially is to read her. Uh, and going back to what you were saying before, Craig, I was going to say, and I, I cannot remember for the life of me the name of the author. But back when I did criminology as an undergraduate, there was there was a paper I wrote, and uh, obviously this does not speak to all wheelchair users at all. I, I was just they were talking from the perspective of, of themselves as a wheelchair user, mm-hmm. um, and they talked about being robbed at knife point whilst obviously being in the wheelchair and they said mm-hmm. that the person grabbed onto the wheelchair and for them personally and I, I don't know if this is the case for you Craig and certainly not talking for the wider populace um but they said it felt more, very much like they were grabbing their own body because they were so because so, the wheelchair is such a significant part of their life it was mm-hmm. almost like you're grabbing a part of me you know absolutely I mean for listeners I can actually remove myself from said wheelchair um quite easily but it is part of me and without it I would not be able to get around I would not be able to do my usual day-to-day tasks so for all intents and purposes the wheelchair is part of me but it's it's an interesting one I don't know whether people see the wheelchair still I, I do have some friends who I've had for a very long time yourself included who have previously said that they don't see the wheelchair but I mean how can you not <laughs> You know, it's not like I can hide that. How some people can sort of hide the fact that they have or they choose not to reveal to other people that they have a different sexuality or a different faith or a different belief or a different view on life. They can hide those things, but you can't necessarily hide a disability of that description. Whereas you might be able to hide the fact that you have an invisible disability and therefore seem normal-ish in uh, inverted commas. Um, but say normal is a very poor choice of words considering the society we live in. Indeed. And the sociologist within me is going to say, what is normal anyway? And how do we define normality because everybody has a different form of normality so yeah I mean that that was a little bit of an interesting discussion (laughs) about how consent sort of links to all of that so thank you for that guys uh, and ladies um, however you wish to be identified because we are welcoming of all identities on this podcast (laughs) are you just like ashamed of me right now Callum My, my introverts coming out there, so I apologise. Your introverts, okay, that's fine. Right. We're going to be covering introversion in another podcast episode. Uh, yeah, did you not know that? No. No. Great. <laughs> yeah, we definitely are. I've already given you some reading for it, but you didn't realise it at the time. I've already read the book. You be have. Quiet. Quiet. Yes, yeah. But in terms of going forward and moving the, the episode on, should we maybe speak about the different types of consent one can have in relationships? But I, think- I would like to add something to the, the consent definition that... Um, of course. About before, because I feel like it's a very good definition for me, especially in the like sexual context. I, I feel like some parts are missing in this okay. definition. I, I feel like for me, it's important for people to know that consent, because you said um, so just because someone consents to something one time, it does not mean that they will always consent. And I feel like in addition to that, we should add that consent can be taken away at any point in t- time. 100%. No matter how far you've already went. 
and that consent can also not be given when someone is like super strongly intoxicated, unconscious, sleeping, or like under the legal age of consent. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that in the UK is. Like here it's 16 in Switzerland. Like 18, is it? Okay. I think it is, yeah. On, on that topic, I mean, I don't know. Have you seen the video Consent and Tea? Has anybody seen that? Yeah. Because I think it's fantastic. It is. Have you not seen it, Nina? Consent and tea, like a tea yes. to drink. Yeah, the tea you drink. Uh, it was it was done by the Thames Valley Police here in the UK. So that's like Yorkshire, right? Is it Thames yeah. Valley? Yeah. Um, I believe. And they were talking about if somebody wants a cup of tea, ask them. But if they if they're asleep, don't give them tea. Don't pour the tea in their mouth. <laughs> Literally, don't pour the tea. Um, I will send you that video. It's really interesting, but it completely summarizes what consent is. And mm-hmm. for our listeners, I will also link that in the description. Because um, if you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. Um, everybody does. Everybody does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Very British form of what consent should be, isn't it, Craig? We're being honest. It is. It really is. I mean, I, I'm assuming you have tea in Switzerland. Yeah, we do, but it's not uh, as as a part of our culture as it is. In- uh, right. Okay. Do you have something that is of the same cultural um, value as tea? A beverage. Interest. Yeah, as a beverage. Not really. We have the villa. This is like a drink you can only get in Switzerland, but it's not good. So, I mean, our our okay. brand chocolate, right? Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. I was sidetracking there. I do apologize. He wants free samples, Nina. That's all it is. I will speak to you later, Mr. Jones. <laughs> but there are many different types of consent to pull us back on track. There is implied consent. That's consent that is not provided directly by the individual It can be given via a third party or non-verbally. Implied consent is often what sexual offenders use to defend themselves against an accusation of assault. And that's by Plaxton in 2015. Yeah, I thought it was important to pop that in, Craig, just 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 an old criminology reference that I I remembered from a long time ago. And there's probably a lot more more relevant ones now and uh, who cover a lot more scope. But I just remembered that... When we did a module on, on sex offenders and, uh, and for you as well, Nina, you know, they, they were saying that what a lot of people will do if a, if a crime is reported, which is very rare, because obviously, you know, I've said it in the notes, the stigma that goes against, goes against experiencing it. Um, a lot of people will use what's called implied consent. Like, for example, this is hi- hypothetical, but they might go, oh, they said they wanted to before they got intoxicated. Oh, they implied it when they when they sat on my lap. Does that make any sense? And actually, the whole concept of it is, is complete ludicrousy because you know like, like you said you're absolutely right consent can be taken away at any time and um but that's that's the most common thing that, that people who do offend try to use to kind of get out of it interestingly mm. i've experienced that personally i'm so sorry that's all i think maybe this is also important to add here that it's not just no means no so even someone like not um actively like this consent what is the, the opposite of consent? i would just you, say remove consent or... remove consent yeah yeah. yeah. If someone not like actively remove consent and tells you this like verbally or physically by pushing you away, mm-hmm. that does not mean they consent. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So not just because someone is drunk or like someone invited you to that place implies that they consent consented for like further sexual activity. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And that could be, it doesn't have to be physical sex, it's sexual touches either. A lot of people kind of think, oh, if, if they've had that, you know, for example, sexual banter or, you know, a lot of people as well will kind of go, oh, they, they were all right with me doing it last time, you know, but actually, you know, maybe they weren't. Or if they were, it doesn't mean they were, will be the next time. Yeah. It's just, it's really important. And I'm just trying to soak it all up. That's why I'm quiet at the minute. I'm just trying to sort of like soak it up and uh, sort of like understand it and digest it. So, yeah. Well, what do you think about it, Craig? Just out of interest, just to, just to, just, just to pull you well, out there. I think but. implied consent is ridiculous mm-hmm. in the sense that, they can't use that as a defence. It's like saying, you know, um, if a woman is wearing a miniskirt, she was asking for it. Absolutely not. I want to point out here now, I am a feminist and I'm completely against the idea of, like, dress or clothing being a form of asking for it. I think... It's, it disgusts me that people can automatically just think they can do things because people are dressing a certain way. It horrifies me and saddens me as well. If somebody sat on your lap naked, they're still not asking for it, are they? No, they're Remove not. the items of clothing, remove the items of clothing completely, take it out of the equation. Mm. No one's asking for it. Nobody asks that. Absolutely. And, you know, this the same thing happened. On I, I was on a train on the way home and a random lady came up to me and she just randomly hugged me because she thought I looked cute. And I'm like... What the fuck? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I'm just like... She was like, oh, you're cute. What's your your disability what got you then and I was like no no just just step away (laughs) and yeah I was just aghast with that really but anyway it's not all about me it's just one example that I can give no, it's a very relevant. It's a very relevant example, Craig, and I think I think it's rightfully that you bring that forward because that that, that, that I mean I can't speak for the woman per se, but what it sounds like she's kind of said or conveyed there is, oh, this person's disabled, therefore I'm allowed to touch them or I'm allowed to enter that space, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Almost like this pitiful kind of taking pity on again. It's ableism, isn't it? You know, it's taking pity, taking pity, isn't it? Yeah, but it was so random. <laughs> It was so, so random. But how, did, how did you feel? Like, were you shocked or scared? Or To be quite honest, like I was just sat there minding my own business. I felt embarrassed yeah. because I was like, you didn't consent to that. You didn't ask me if I could hug you. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed that I, I wasn't asked. Like if it was a friend, that's fine. But if random people come up and hug me, like... That's not good. <laughs> yeah, I feel it's like a very um, valid example because it's not that different from when someone might experience sexual harassment, for example, on public transportation, and, mm. and someone just touches them um, without their consent just because, you know, they were wearing a short dress or whatever. It's just like, oh, she wears a short dress so I can touch her butt. And it's like, oh, this poor guy is in a wheelchair so I can hug him. So it's like... 
actually. That's different, actually. You've just framed that really, really well. And I am so glad we have you on the podcast. Like, so, so glad. Because uh, it's, it's wonderful to hear another individual's voice on the topic. Not that I don't love Callum, because I do absolutely 100%. But we thought we need to get a guest on. So, again, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Are you all right, Callum? Yeah. Are, are you sure? <laughs> like, are you just having a moment? I'm good. I'm good. I'm all good. Just introversion. Introversion moments. That's okay, that's fine. And there was me thinking that introversion only existed in person. Oh. Excellent. So, moving on, would you like to explain other forms of consent, Callum? Sure thing. Uh, where are we here? Hold on, let me just get all the notes. So, we have express consent, which is provided directly by the in, the individual. This can often be done verbally or orally, and it can mm-hmm. also be done in writing as well, so where the person is legally signed for for, for the consent. Um, so, if, it depends how we're, how we're looking at this, but if, if we go back to your kind of on the train craig for example if you had gotten speaking to this person and you had initiated or said yes it's okay for you to hug me that would have been an expressed kind of example of consent there because it's happening mm. on, on your on your terms and it's also something that is, is is coming from both ways that person was okay to hug you you were okay to receive that hug um, mm-hmm. which i think is obviously is extremely important and i think it's also like like you say it, it doesn't also go to kind of to, to the sexual stuff as well you know these kind of things can go you know through contracts they can go through you know all different kinds of notions if we are doing it signed as well um it's just mm. again highlighting that we need to counseling even as a, as a form of consent that one is okay to um record notes and things like that yeah that's, yeah absolutely and, you know actually to be fair just while i'm at this um I was talking to my friend who is actually a professional dominatrix, Craig and, and, and Nina, and she was saying that when she works with a the client, they actually sign a contract there, um, which um, the client consents to what they are okay to happen with them in the relationship and what they're not okay with. Then she keeps a tab on that and obviously refers back to it to make sure on each session that she doesn't do anything that, um, that the client would find um, inappropriate or invasive mm-hmm. as well. So I just thought that might be an interesting kind of thing to put, put forward there as well. Definitely, definitely. So the next definition we had in mind, or the next form of consent, was informed consent. Is the consent gathered by a healthcare provider or the individual before the client, patient or service undergoes intervention or procedure? Informed consent notifies a person of all aspects of treatment, and that's from the NHS UK. And I think... That's kind of almost what you just mentioned, Callum. Kind of. Yeah. I think more from a medical, uh, yeah, absolutely. More from a medical uh, intervention or an interventional perspective, uh, which can also be medical as well. Yeah. I mean, hmm. <laughs> I just wonder can, can one have informed consent in a sexual relationship? Uh, like, is, is that a thing? I have no idea. As a I question. Mean, as a question. That's good. What do you think on that, Nina? Just out of interest. I, I don't think so. No, I don't. It's like the, the same we talked about express consent, and um, you said it can be done orally or in writing. Mm-hmm. And I would also argue the writing part because in sexual consent, you can like you can um, 
take the consent away at any point. So that means like even even if I've had like a written contract with you on what we're going to do sexually, it's it's not a legal form. It, it doesn't exist. And that's, this is why I think you can come with a piece of paper and like, oh, this is what I'm going to do to you tonight. Mm. Uh, just I'm here and then I can do it and you cannot do that. This is not how it works. No, absolutely not. No. You, have, you guys have other opinions about that. I, I don't have an other opinion. I, I agree with what you, you were saying completely. Um, no, I completely agree as well. I completely agree as well. It, it would be interesting. I suppose the, the only way you could get another perspective on that is if you got somebody from, for example, the, the BDSM community who did that and got what their perspective on because it could be very well that they do kind of run through through the consent form with them again, if, if, there, is, if there are issues, I don't know. Um, but I completely agree. But I suppose it would be interesting to have another perspective on that, wouldn't it? Oh, well, I or I would argue, like, maybe, yeah, especially in the BDSM community, maybe you do. Or, or like, uh, your uh, your friend who's a professional dominatrix do this kind of contract or list of things that you agree to do, but you still need, like, this backdoor in form of a safe word. That, yeah. like, even though we agreed to do this, like, now I'm not feeling yeah. like... And I can still use this. Absolutely. And now that you mention it, I think she actually did say that she used that actually as well. I think, I think that yeah, I think there is like a word if, if something is getting too much. I think I think there's, there's I think she has several actually for, for certain areas of where she wants if, if they want her to, to tone it down, and then there's another one where if they want it to stop completely. Hmm. So I think this would be kind of a part of informed consent because you figured it like figured it out before, mm-hmm. but you still have an option to make it stop. Mm. I think also the next definition that we, we're going to talk about is unanimous consent. And that is where consent exists um, across the entire relationship. Unanimous consent is often used in politics to pass bills and laws. It is where every party consents to proceedings. But you could certainly apply that to sexual relationships. And I would say that unanimous consent is the consent that one ought to go for before initiating any kind of sexual act. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think it's always important to keep referring back, like like you said there, Nina, as well, that you need to check these things constantly um, and make sure that the person is, because like, like you say, you might be all right with it one minute, but it doesn't mean you're going to be okay with it another. Yeah. I was doing some research prior to this and um, I was looking at examples of what consent is and I was just wondering whether you would agree with some of these examples, Nina. So the website... Uh, loveisrespect.org suggests that if you're caught up in the heat of the moment, here are some ways to get the temperature back down before going any further. Are you, co- are you are you comfortable? Is this okay? Do you want to slow down? And do you want to go any further as examples of gaining consent? Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it really is important to be verbal with one's partner i don't have a partner so i can't really comment much on this but i can definitely tell you that not tell not telling you directly anina but rather the listener uh that what consent does not look like is that behavior like dressing a certain way or flirting or accepting a ride or a gift or a drink as a form of consent neither is saying yes or not saying no 
uh, which is what we mentioned a bit earlier. And also, you know, we must hone the idea that consent can be withdrawn. It's very important to hone that in. So what does a respectful sexual relationship look like, do you think, as a, a question for everybody there? I think kind of what I wanted to like follow up with what you said when you mentioned all these examples of how you can also ask for consent. I, I mm-hmm. feel like this is very important to remember because I know a lot of people in my friend circle because I'm known as like the feminist guy who always like, um, promotes like feminist stuff and like fight against sexual violence. And sometimes people are like, but Nina, it's so unsexy when my partner asks me like, do you consent to this? Do you want this? All the time. It's like they say like it, it takes uh, it, it takes the like, the atmosphere from the moment. And I feel like I understand what they mean, but there are tons of different ways you can ask for consent. Exactly with the phrases you said before, or like, tell me what you want to do. Do you like this? Are you still okay with this? Mm-hmm. Stuff like and, and this can be like so sexy. It doesn't have to be like this official, very formal um, question. Do you consent to what we're doing? It's all in the tone of voice, one might suggest. Just to... (laughs) Oh, dear. Callum's having a moment. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm fine. No, 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 you're just making me... No, but it's it's absolutely absolutely true. And I think, like you say, I think one of the the greatest things you can do as a partner um, by checking in is simply just being warm and just asking somebody if they're okay, you know, Mm. how simple absolutely it baffles me that there are some people or a lot of people in the world that don't think consent is required (laughs) no i think i think a common thing i think a common issue that we have as well a lot of people and i've heard it quite a lot it's quite perpetuated in in, in kind of pornography and and in you know in, in in film and in, in literature, a lot of people kind of use the phrase, oh, it's, you like it, don't you? You like it, you like it, you like it. You hear things like that quite a lot when actually do they? Mm. You know? Yeah, like- by asking the question that way, it's even harder to say no, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, exactly. What it I, puts what more I, pressure, doesn't it? One more time? Oh, sorry, sorry, it puts more pressure on the person, yeah. doesn't it? Mm. It puts more pressure on mm. Yeah, it- and I feel like maybe also, like through pornography or like, not even just not not just pornography, also through like all mainstream movies and stuff. It's like there is this very wrong image that you need to push again and again if someone doesn't want. Like you need to fight for them. You you need to persuade them. That's mm-hmm. right. Like you need to put more effort and try again and again and seduce them. But it's like no, if someone doesn't want, you need to stop pushing. A very wrong image that we get like taught from like very young on through media. Yeah, so it's like obviously it's a submission, isn't it? Until so eventually you give up, and and then then I'll then I'll, uh, then I'll my wicked way. Uh, I, it's kind of interesting, Craig. Actually, and Nina actually on that. It's like with me being a counsellor, it just made me think back to because um, obviously with me working with trauma victims or people who've experienced trauma, should I say? I remember working with a young woman who who obviously was was sexually assaulted by by a male. And um, I was very kind of explicit when we were contracting. I was saying, are you sure you want to work with me? And they were very explicit and they said, yes. But even even then I was kind of like, are you sure? Because <laughs> obviously it's that whole thing of, you know, I am a male. I might not be a masculine male, but I'm still a male. And, you know, I'm also coming from a place of privilege here, which I have to be aware of. And we need, you know, 
make sure that you feel safe and that you're okay. And we did amazing work together and it, it was really good, but it's so important, even at the contracting stage in counselling. Um, and you'll find this, Craig, when, when, when you come to this, uh, being a trainee counsellor, that, you know, you do keep checking in with people that are they okay to work with you? You know, and mm-hmm. I always say at any point you want to withdraw the council and you just say, and that's, that's absolutely fine. It's, I think my tutor described it as checking in on the progress of the therapeutic relationship, always making sure that the client is getting what they're expecting from therapy. Definitely. That was the only client that nearly made me cry, actually, Craig, interestingly, because um, they said at the end of it, at the therapy, and this is, it nearly got me, it was um, they, they said, well, you've made me realise that all men aren't the same. And I was like, like, into my chest, punch, if you get what I mean. So powerful kind of the this is why i do that kind of work sort of thing yeah so yeah i mean i think this is also why it's so important to have like male therapists and male counselors who are not afraid of working um with rape or sexual assault survivors i know that not all rape and sexual assault survivors are women but um a big part of it are women. I, I mean, I can totally understand if, if a female person doesn't want to talk to like a male therapist or counselor, whatever. But I feel like if we create this bubble that it's just like women talking to women about it, so it becomes like this massive women issue. And I think it's like 98 or even 99% of all the perpetrators are men. So it's a man's issue as well. And we need people... We need men to like participate and, and engage in this discussion. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think more than anything as well. I, I don't know. I, I can't speak for Switzerland, Nina. This is more of a question. Um, but in the UK, particularly with the, with the men I've worked with um, who have been assaulted by women, which is very rare, it happens. But I have worked with them um, in the UK legally. By the way, and I'm saying this legally, um, you can't actually be raped by a woman because because rape involves penetration. Um, is that the same in Switzerland, Nina, for men? Just out of interest. Well, I live in quite a conservative country right and sexual criminal law here is quite poor i'd say right, right. so as a man or like as a person with a penis mm-hmm. and not get raped right mm-hmm. there is no such thing as anal rape there is no such thing as oral rape here there is just vaginal rape it's yeah. like penis and vagina like even if another object is used to penetrate the vagina it's not rape it must be a penis in the vagina and i think this is yeah very bad <laughs> That's shocking. Like um, 2021. I think the word... Women can't be rapists here and men can't get raped from neither man or women. I think the word that we're looking for there is heteronormative. And I don't think the law has caught up yet, has it? (laughs) Um, I laugh, but I laugh out of nervousness, not... I I mean, the guy I worked with, they they treated him terribly. He, he was he was essentially gang raped by three women. And again, I'm using the colloquial term legally. We can't use that term, but I'm going to use it on here. And they burnt him with lighters, and they 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 they, they, they fed him Viagra and all sorts. So he went through real hell, and um, was very frightened of women. That's why he was working with myself. Um, mm. So it's interesting. It's interesting. But I, I think you're absolutely right, Nina. Is that there needs to be a lot more education for men as well in terms of what consent is as well because actually and you're absolutely right um stigma or not most of the perpetrators are male it's it, it's just that that's it is it's yeah. easy, actually. i imagine there's a lot more men than we know of because obviously yeah. male stigma there's a lot of stigma on men isn't there but there's a lot but like you said you're absolutely right yeah but what we also should not forget is that yes like most part of the perpetrators are men but most men are not perpetrators absolutely 
So I feel like by statement of like, oh, boys will be boys. And this is, yeah, come on. Maybe you understood something wrong. Like you need to relax. This is just the way men are. I feel like if I were like an honest man, I'd be offended by these Absolutely. statements. Because well, it's, it's like... toxic masculinity, isn't it? That's just, that's pure toxic masculinity. Yeah. And it's, it's making an assumption that all men are, all men are uh, horny cavemen. Essentially. Yeah, and they can control you themselves. Know. Yeah, of you know, which is certainly not the case. <laughs> we are more than capable of controlling ourselves. It's not a, it's not, it's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Yeah, loss of control should never be used as as a defence. I mean, I mean, the only, I mean, never a defence. By the way, the, the only way I could see that coming out in a court of law is if some, if the, if the perpetrator had some kind of. Um, nymphomania I mean obviously that would be very rare and it's still it's still besides the point rape's rape and the person deserves to be to be punished and brought thingy but that's the only way I could see that ever being brought into some sort of legality discussion if that makes sense just from I'm just talking criminologically there by the way not I'm not detracting from the seriousness of crime I just mean in terms of if um, if it came to law and, and they were kind of look into medical issues that's the only way I could see that being brought forward yeah that could be the same for women as well by the way it's interesting yeah it's slightly disturbing stuff I think it's like that guy is that I don't know if you've heard of it, Nina, and you might have created, there, there was a guy in America or Canada, I can't remember which one, but he was, he had a condition, a, a type of, a very rare, if I think it affects something like one in every 20 million or something like that. And it was a type of sleepwalking condition. I can't remember the actual term of it, but every time he woke up, he was having sexual relations with somebody. Oh my God. Wow. Um, it has has an actual term. It's a very, very rare condition. I think there's been barely any cases reported of it, but he used to wake up and he'd find himself on top of on top of women. Um, and then he'd have to leave before they woke up and he sought therapy for it. Anyway, obviously ended up speaking about it publicly on a documentary. And he's like, I don't know what to do. I don't have to come forward and tell these women what's happened and traumatize them. Or do I also do the disgusting thing of keeping it to myself? So that's quite an interesting one, isn't it? Um, it's a type of narcolepsy. I think something something like very very rare. Heard about that condition? Say, say that again, sorry, Nina. I've never heard about that. No, no, it, it was I've, it was so long ago. I heard it was in the United States, um, but very rare condition or something. Mm-hmm. Gosh, Calm, you do come up with all of, all of the interesting facts, don't you? <laughs> oh dear. Um, so just for the record, by the way, what what are you still doing, regardless if you're conscious of it or not, is still horrendously wrong. One hundred percent. I'm just pointing out there, just just out of pure interest to see what people thought. Mm, I mean, I'm almost like criminologically interested, but from a feminist standpoint, I'm horrified. Absolutely. And the interesting about something like that, though, isn't it? Is where would that go in court? Because if somebody's not conscious committing the act, and the person not conscious receiving the act, is there laws for stuff like that? Just. Well, I think the main point is that you really need to prove that yeah. he was not conscious and that he was not aware of what he was doing. And I, I think this is uh, the relevant and the difficult part. Absolutely. Absolutely. Completely. We're nearly halfway through. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of part one. Uh, we'll return momentarily.
welcome back to part two of the Therapy Files. I'm here with my colleague, Callum, and Hello. I'm here with our guest, Nina. Welcome back. How was your break? Lovely. Wonderful. It's at this point that Callum normally says refreshing uh, as a standing joke, but also I'd like to remind our listeners that, of course, we are, of course, indebted to our sponsor, Swanshaw, the finest purveyor of kitchens and many other fittings in the UK. We are going to speak now about the types of violence one might experience in a relationship in it, in terms of sexual violence, because I think it's quite important to note there are different types and I'll take it away with the first one, which is probably the most common one that people will have heard of, and that's rape. So rape is defined as the unconsented or unwanted deliberate sexual penetration of one party by another. This occurs vaginally, anally and orally, and can occur in relationships by those who are unknown and known to a person alike. And Callum, I cannot pronounce that name. Can you? Which one? Sorry, buddy. Oh, so, I, so it's okay. Hold on, Hilger, 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 Charlotte Hannell in 2018. She recently re-released that book. Actually, you know, did she? You know, yeah, she's a fantastic writer. On uh, she's a feminist and she writes. She's a criminologist, feminist, and she writes quite heavily on sexual violence. So, if anybody's interested, do check out her work. She is absolutely fantastic. Mm, and I suppose. This is where we sort of refer to our guest, um, because Nina, for those who don't know, uh, is also a YouTuber and has released a video, have you not, about yes, the idea of... I, I would not go as far as uh, <laughs> describe me as a YouTuber, because I I just uploaded three videos or something like this. Well, hey, you're the closest to a YouTuber I've ever met. So. <laughs> Share the video too. I, I can add that to my CV, I guess. Definitely. Yes, yeah, so the video we're talking about is called uh, Letter to My Rapist that I uploaded last September. And it's a spoken word poetry that I did. And I, I wrote it to an, a man who raped me last June. Um, an unknown man. I didn't know him. He just followed me um, back home and raped me in my apartment. I had weird feelings about it because it, I didn't know this person. I didn't know anything about him if, except like this 30 minutes and what he did to me and he got arrested and he's in custody now and um, the trial is still ongoing so I, I found out more about his biography and his life through that but especially right after it happened I had a lot of difficulties to feel any kind of emotions towards him and I think it was very difficult or like weird for people like friends and family in, in like my close circle to understand why I was not feeling more angry towards this person but I just didn't feel anything and I think part of that was just like my mind protecting me because I, I had so much other stuff to like focus on and, and spend my energy on like I was in the middle of my final exams and I just like wanted to finish my studies I, I moved places like just one day after the rape so I had to organize like a move from one city to another and then, then there were all these appointments with lawyers and with police and like suddenly I was thrown into this world of criminal like sex sexual criminal law and I didn't know anything about it and it was just too much to handle I think for my brain so it was like okay we're not dealing with this man right now and the emotions that we should or should not feel towards him and once everything has settled down a bit the police investigations were finished 
and I graduated my studies, I kind of had more energy to like just focus on myself and my healing. And I went to a um, psychiatric clinic for 10 weeks. And this is when I wrote this poem that is on YouTube. And I, I just like to write in general. So I, I often write letters to people or feelings or situations. Like, I'm never going to send these letters, but it's just I, I find it healing. And I wrote so many letters to my rapist. And I felt like I was always trying to find justification why he did what he did. And it was only like through therapy in this clinic when like my anger and my, my rage towards him um, started to rise. And that's when I, I read all the letters I wrote before. I think it was like five or six letters that I wrote to him before. And I started to feel angry, like even at myself for what I wrote, because I was like, I was apologizing to him for, yeah, now he's in custody. Now he he's in, like someone is in prison because of me that's what I always used to tell myself and then I yeah it was just like this moment of realization when I was like he's in prison because of what he did and not because of what I did it's not my responsibility and it's definitely not something I need to apologize for and that's when I wrote this this poem that I then like read out loud and put on YouTube that was it was a, a, a big step for me also because I, I felt it was like this public thing it was in the newspaper like everyone in my life knew about it and I lost control of who knows the story who knows, just some rumors, like people were, were blaming me for this. People, yeah, just made stuff up that didn't actually happen. And I, I was like in the weak position because I couldn't justify myself. I couldn't tell my point of the story. And so I felt like with uploading this this video and also posted on my social media, it was like a small part of me taking back control. And yeah, just like telling my side of the story and telling what actually happened. Yeah. So this is say about the video. I suppose that speaks to the idea of post-traumatic growth, which is something that Callum and I have mentioned a little on this podcast previously. The idea that through trauma, growth can come, growth can happen, I suppose. I guess that's true. But um, I, I also kind of think there is, you're not given a choice, right? Mm, I, I always struggle a bit with the words, uh, you're so strong, or like, you're an inspiration. I know that this comes from like a very caring and supportive point. But I feel like it, for me personally, it puts a lot of pressure on myself. Because it's like, okay, so I'm, I'm acting like this. I finish my studies. I go to the clinic. I, I talk openly about it. So this means I'm strong. So what if I wouldn't have done that? What if I wouldn't have called the police? That would be weak. And, and not at all. It's kind of because I feel like telling someone strong is not really um not really an a this um I don't know how to say it. I mean, <laughs> it's not really a this an adjective, you know, that describes someone. It's it's more like um value someone's behavior. And you tell, oh, this is a strong behavior and this is a, a weak behavior and this is a good and this is a bad behavior. And um yeah, I think it just makes me feel like I didn't have another choice. Like This happened to me. So now I need to deal with it mm -hmm. in whatever way. And I need to live with it and carry on with it. So mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense what it I just said. It makes complete sense, Nina. And I think if you, look, if you look, for example, to movements like the, the Me Too movement, as, as, as great as that was, by the way, um, there was a, a horrendous amount of pressure put on a lot of a lot of women to to, to kind of come forward. And I think, I think there, there's something about that people don't owe you their story. And I think if you don't want to talk about something and you don't want to speak about it openly i think that's absolutely fine and i think if you do want to talk about it like yourself or, or if you if you're choosing to channel it that way i think it is of course it's positive but i think it's also about we have to also acknowledge that you're under no obligation and you're under no pressure from from any from you particularly to yourself to to carry that burden to, for the people if that makes any sense if you it's how you want to deal with it on your own if that makes any sense because at the end of the day it's your story and as i, as I say to many people who i've worked with in, in therapy and in trauma you know when you go through something like that 
how you choose to channel it is your choice without pressure if that makes any sense there's no you know society cannot put expectations on you though you know yeah i i completely agree with what you said um and also like in in the same context with me like calling the police like starting this investigation like going the whole way to court which most likely will happen in summer and so many people tell me like it's so good that you did this because you protect other women from becoming potential victims and i totally agree with that uh, Sometimes I also feel like, you know, it's it's not my job to like save the women. And I say this as a feminist and I, I completely believe that what I did was the right thing. But I, I feel it's wrong to tell someone that if through their action, they're like protecting others. So what if I wasn't in a position to call the police, then potential future rapes or sexual assault through that perpetrator would be like partially my fault as well. And I disagree with that. I completely agree with you. And I think there's something to be said about, you know, if we're talking hypothetically here, if every woman or man who comes forward and takes it through the court process, if that's what's supposed to happen, and I say that with massive inverted commas, if that's what makes you the inspiration, then for people who are the victims of historic sexual abuse, where, where do they fall into that? Do you know what I mean? The people who couldn't come forward or the people who weren't taken seriously, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, most of the rape cases go unreported. I don't know about statistics in, in the UK, but yes, exactly. it's embarrassing, the statistics. It's like, I think like from all reported rape cases, less than 20% actually make it to court. And from those 20% who makes it to court, um, only like, I think like between 15 and 20% will end in a conviction. Uh, in a conviction is the word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well. <laughs> so this, and there are so many rapes who are, that, that are not even reported, so... Yeah. It just saddens me that there are people out there who feel that they can do this to people. And I say that with genuine emotion because it really does bother me. And I'm sorry that you went through that, Nina. And we appreciate you sharing that with us and with our listeners. And as difficult as it is, it's important that it gets spoken about. And that's exactly why we're choosing to speak today about relationships and consent, because as individuals and as podcast host to podcast host, we actually do believe in the importance of this topic. For for anybody that's not quite sure why we're still doing this, um, that is that is why we're doing it. Thank you for sharing that, Nina. Yeah, no, no, it's very, very powerful, very powerful, Nina. And I mean, I mean that in, in no condescending way. I mean that in a genuine human-to-human contact. And I think one thing that I think is very poignant, and I think it should always be remembered, is you know, like you absolutely said, by saying things like. I'm certainly not saying that people can't call people inspirations, and I'm not saying that it's not okay to say those things in terms of you know because people are. But what what it's about as well, it's about not calling them that as if it's their responsibility to then go forward and then put them charges on somebody or that you have to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders because you're protecting every other woman or you're protecting every other man. Um, I think you can be an inspiration, and I'm talking thingy here, you can be an inspiration just by surviving trauma. And I don't just mean sexual assault there. I mean in all forms of trauma because, and I've used it before, Craig, I've said it about grief, trauma is the unwanted gift. You know, it's something that we're given. And I use the gift, the term gift, very loosely there, by the way. It's something that is almost placed on us or is placed on us without, without beyond our control, you know. And that's when I always use that assumptive world theory. Our, our, our world shatters, you know, with trauma. 
Um, so it was very powerful, Nina. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. And I think you're absolutely right about responsibility and, and, and using the correct language and the, and the correct terminology in in in, um, in speaking to people who have been the victims or, or the, the survivors or the, the you know the experiences of sexual assault. Yeah, and I feel like at this point it's important to mention, like for anyone who's listening and maybe has been through like sexual trauma or trauma in any form hasn't been able to talk about it or hasn't been given the chance to talk about it or hasn't been taken seriously. Um, it's not it's not their fault and it's not something we should blame them for. And it's completely fine if you deal with your trauma differently and if you decide to not share it with someone. This doesn't make you responsible for someone else's hypothetically potential future um, trauma. Um. <laughs> I'm just a little bit stunned because the way you speak about everything so honestly to me that is that is bravery and I don't want to I don't want to place that label on you because you might not feel brave but for me personally I perceive that as bravery I'm just honoured that you chose to share that with us so thank you and before I cry we're going to move on I just wanted to point a point out Craig as well and I'm certainly not being controversial here you know we spoke we spoke about being astonished why people commit these kind of crimes obviously they can do i'd like to kind of point out that criminologically i understand and i mean that criminologically i understand i understand that the factors that can go into somebody choosing to do that and i use the word choosing because it's entirely the person's choice and it's their their issue and their fault that these these crimes occur the perpetrators but on a personal level on a human level i don't understand you know so theoretically in terms of what I've studied and what I what I'm educated in, I don't like using the word understand. I comprehend why sex offences happen, but on a human level, they do not resonate with me whatsoever. If that makes sense, I completely agree with that. And um, thank you for adding that to the discussion, Callum. So the next point that we were going to raise is around sexual violence of incest. Now, I don't know a lot about this topic. However, I do have a colleague who is ironically uh, doing her PhD at the moment at Lancaster University in the UK. And she is looking at the portrayals of um, incest within fiction and film. Um, do forgive me, Bethan, if that isn't the correct title, but I know that you are primarily looking at those sort of relationships between family members. And I think even though I can't speak to that as a topic, it would have been really good if I was able to get Bethan on. And perhaps with hindsight, I should have got her on to discuss this but it is important to bring out the idea that incest unfortunately does happen within the real world as well as the fictional world or the filmic world and it saddens me that it does i do want to point out craig as well and i'm certainly not advocating for incest in any kind of way for some of these days i do not think that that's what i'm saying here um, but i do want to point out that there are areas of the world where it is considered a normality and it is under consent of people of the same age as well where they are the same age i mean obviously it's abhorrent in certain regards but some places it's culturally acceptable um, i know there's a, a, a tribe in south america who, who particularly believe in it and um, i'm certainly not being inappropriate there i mean that in terms of in terms of respecting their cultural heritage but they they, they very much believe that by being together um continue strengthens the bloodline but similar to the way the the ancient egyptians did as well so that, that's some that we, I think it's important to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you have anything to add on that, Nina? Or moving on swiftly, the next one we had was non-penetrative 
sexual assault. And according to RAIN.org, this involves the unwanted, unconsented, intentional act of touching or groping a person. I think that definition particularly just does what it says on the tin. Um, that's a very British phrase. I do apologise. I'm not sure you've come across that phrase. No, I, I was going kind of, to say, Craig, on that one as well, I think a lot of people kind of don't realise that the act of just simply being touched by another individual sexually can be extremely traumatic. I mean, I mean obviously, it's certainly rape and you know, penetration and stuff like that but I was interested to get yours and Nina's thoughts on that that you know being gross I say just being gross being physically grabbed or having somebody violate that about the trauma I mean what, what do you guys think on that are you, are you guys of a similar or would you like to yeah I mean we in Switzerland we have a bit we talked about it before we have different um, we have different names for this but like rape only is like in the vagina um, penetration and all the other like coerced sexual activities activity yeah, yeah. Um, go under the term I think uh, it's called sexual coercion in English um, and or like sexual sexual abuse and this includes unwanted touching or but also it, it um, contains like forcing someone for oral sex for example or like penetrating them anally or penetrating them vaginally with an object and this is all in like under the umbrella of sex, sexual coercion slash sexual abuse so I think in my country with these rules uh, I definitely argue that sexual assault can be just as traumatic, sometimes maybe even more traumatic than like rape per definition itself. And this is what I personally struggled a lot with when people ask me what exactly happened. And um, that they kind of like I got the impression that they put penetration on like the top on, on the top number one. Like, this is the worst thing that someone can force you to do. And I don't agree with it because I, I feel like when, when we talk about sexual assault and rape and just someone forcing you to do stuff that you don't want to do, it, it's not not about the specific act in particular but it's like about the feeling that you have or at least I can only talk for myself it might be different for other um, survivors but for me it was like the, the feeling of you completely like control you realize I can fight as much as I want like I'm, I'm not in control of the situation and I cannot end it and I might die and there's nothing I can do about it and I feel like this is the traumatic part whether there's penetration involved or not in my case like it really didn't make any difference I think yeah sexual assault can definitely be as traumatic as rape. No, absolutely I think it's I think you know one of the key words that was used when, when I used to study this kind of stuff was just the simple violation just simply being violated by by somebody else without that, that consent um and a, a bit like you said nina that the fear of the possibility of, of actually being killed and, and and not walking away from what is already an incredibly traumatic situation you know so having that fear of could i die here you know or a, a lot of people as well um I'm certainly not speaking for you nina and i'm not speaking for the entire, entire population but people who i've worked with in counseling have often said that they, they were frightened during it that will i be able to have kids after this are they going to damage me internally so much that oh are they going to do some kind of damage to my body where where i won't live a functioning life for example so i think there is a massive massive kind of issue of, of where we need to look at actually like and you're absolutely right that it's not just about penetration of course that is completely traumatic it's completely violating it's completely just everything but there's something about there is also a lot of, a lot of other things that come into this as well um, which is just as just as if not more traumatic mm, definitely I again for any listeners wondering why I'm being quiet I'm just literally trying to absorb it all and trying to take it in um and trying to understand it really because I obviously haven't been through that experience so this is why we listen and learn from other people um not that I wish to teach the listener 
how to suck eggs, so to speak. But, you know, it's just reinforcing the idea that listening is important. I mean, what, then, what do you think about all this, Craig, from, to get your opinion on, on kind of what me and Nina were just talking about then, about, about sexual, sexual um, non-penetrative, I'll use the term non-penetrative assault. Uh, what, what's kind of your what, your take on it? I, I agree that... In terms of the trauma, in terms of... So you agree? I, I agree that there is a trauma there and we do need to acknowledge that emotion that's associated with with said trauma and I I just think it's again it's horrifying what people have to go through and that they can be triggered or go through some kind of vicarious trauma that one might experience and reliving that trauma it's it's just difficult isn't it I think what's maybe also no 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 you go ahead go ahead Nina go ahead no 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 I was literally just going to agree with Craig no no go on please okay um I, I feel like it's also the wrong discussion to have like what's more traumatic, sexual abuse or um, rape or Mm. sexual harassment. I feel like people maybe need this for like themselves that they can say like, oh, okay, it could have been worse though. Mm -hmm. Um, There's always, there's always a a worse part, right? But I feel trauma of any kind, not not just sexual trauma, is like you cannot compare this to another trauma. It's true competition on like what's the worst trauma you can you can experience and, and also like and go through the exact same trauma and react completely differently if, uh, yeah so I, I feel like it's not even the important discussion to have what's mm-hmm. definitely i think that's that's one of the reasons why i was interested because um this this is what i found with a lot of people in, the, in, my, in my in my counseling and, it, and I, I often this is what i kind of say to them is that it's irrelevant what happened the fact of the matter is it's happened and it's affecting your life. Um, and a, an example of that would be like, a bit like you said there. I remember working with one woman who um, almost was raped and it got interrupted and people were saying things to them like, oh, well, it's OK. It didn't actually happen. You, you, you're going to be fine. You know, it's all it's all great. And it actually, it's like, no. Is that what? not gaslighting? Yeah, well, well, in a way, yeah, absolutely. In a way, but what it also is, it's completely dismissing the, dismissing the fact that they could have had something, well, they already, they already had something completely traumatic, but the fact that the, the incident also, you know, didn't happen, you know, when actually it's irrelevant. And that's what I was getting at kind of before with, you know, with the assault in terms of non-penetrative versus penetrative, because actually it's irrelevant. It's trauma and every trauma is different. Yeah, and I feel like by telling stuff like, well, well at least it was not penetrative, yeah, at least yeah. like fully finished. It's like this is not helpful at all for um, the person who's affected by it, and it just increases like a feeling of loneliness and feeling of like being misunderstood. So don't do that. Please. I remember, funnily enough, Nina, you just you just reminded me of one of my clients who I was very fond of her actually, and she'd actually kind of she was really blaming herself for, for the rape that happened to her, and I'm smiling because I made her really laugh at the end of one of the sessions because um, I was like I was really like fed up, not fed up with her because it was her process, but I was getting really angry because she was blaming herself for this this person raping her. I turned around to her and I went, you know what helps with rape, and she went what and I went men or women not raping you know what I mean and that, that and after that she just burst into laughter but it really helped her so I, I think it's just it's just interesting that that people you know, understandably it's a, it's a trauma response we do look inwardly and then I'll say this as a therapist we look inwardly when we experience trauma we try and assert blame to ourselves because it's, it helps us try to comprehend the situation it's a natural response but actually the best thing for preventing rape is for rapists not to rape isn't it 100% I was just agreeing don't worry yeah you know. and I feel it's also in our language Right, we say like I got raped, 
instead of like someone raped me you know it's not i did this like, someone else did it to me and i feel like this yeah it, it comes down to the entire discussion of like stop teaching people and maybe girls in particular on how not to get raped and, and yeah focus on like, teaching people and maybe especially boys not to rape mm, 100 agree yeah mm. that's the thing though is is consent actually covered in sexual education oh we seem to have lost Callum. Hello, Callum. Hello, Callum. Are you there? Hello again. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened then. I feel like we're con- conducting a seance there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, me back. Yeah. So, is consent actually taught in sex education? And that's a genuine, a genuine question out there, put out there for you guys. Um, because I don't remember being personally taught about consent in sex education at school. Maybe my mind has glossed over that. And I mean, it was years ago that we were taught sex education. But I mean, I mean, I went to one of the worst schools in the UK, so probably the worst school in the UK. And I cannot recollect, I cannot recollect being taught about consent. So whether it's something that belligerent ghouls that run Manchester schools forgot to, to put in there or not, I don't know, but I can't recollect it. That was a Smith's reference, by the way, for anyone wondering. Um, so how about for you, Nina? Did, did, was consent brought up for you in Switzerland in terms of sex education? Well, I, I feel definitely not the way it should have. Right. Uh, I remember we talked about it in, in sex education school, but I, I feel like the entire sex education was not very um, good. I, I hope it's different now because it's been quite a while since I participated in that. But um, I remember we learned stuff like if someone says no, that means no. And when we were smaller, like don't go with a stranger, <laughs> don't follow a stranger, don't, don't get yeah. into an unknown man's car. And which are important things to learn, but it's the minority of uh, attacks happen that way. And I think we never talked about um, different forms of consent or like giving examples of consent, like. Mm-hmm how consent could look like and how taking away consent can look like and that no like even a person who's like very close to you and who you love and who you like emotionally connected can not respect your consent and this is considered a crime I, I think it was always kind of this dark alley stranger who will rape you there so it was talked about but definitely not in the way it should have been mm. and just going back to that idea that as children we're taught don't speak to strangers isn't that strange that Callum and I are literally training to speak to strangers. <laughs> I'm just just thinking about what my mum used to say. Don't talk to strangers unless I or your dad are with you. And actually, that's what we're being taught about. And it's strange. It really is. I was thinking, Nina, you might... You- you might know this, you might not do, but in the UK we have we have one one quick one great thing. Well, it's not a great thing. It's it's, it's one. It just makes me laugh because it's kind of going off the dark alley thing. And we saying about consent and that. Well, we have the stay away from men in white vans, don't we, Craig? The man yes. in the white van. Yeah, you heard that one. I have. Yeah, and I suppose also we could sort of maybe talk a bit about how sexual harassment happens or how it is experienced by people. We do have some examples here on the list. Sexual harassment as an issue, just thinking about it, is making verbally inappropriate sexual remarks, touching a person without consent or sending explicit videos or cyber messages. We do see a lot of sexual harassment in the world today. I mean, particularly in in the workplace, you know, people making occasional comments about, you know, sexual relationships. And it's just, it is distressing that sexual harassment does cause so many problems to individuals. It's Um, the dick pic phenomena as well, isn't it, Craig, as well? You know, kind of, of, I don't know what you guys call it in Switzerland. 
yeah, and, and you know the same the same but yeah you know that kind of thing now where it's actually well it's certainly not acceptable but it feels like in some in some way that because it's done over a cyber cyber device that it's acceptable for people to send those to people which of course is absolutely abhorrent mm-hmm. it's almost become the norm though hasn't it mm-hmm. yeah and also with sexual harassment it's always this, this conception that someone is exaggerating or someone is like just being crude or just like being too sensitive it, it was just a joke you know and I, I feel what I wish for people to do more often is like to point out sexist comments and right away and even if it was just like a small something, it's not okay. And I feel we should telling people they're not like chilled and laid back enough about hearing those comments. We should just point them out. I mean, it's it's the same with like pointing out homophobic or racist comments, exactly the same. And we also should be aware that it's it's not something that happens only to women. Like there are, it, it happens uh, very often the other way around, but we don't think it's a possibility that like the female boss would sexually harass like, the male intern or something. And it happens actually a lot. And uh, I feel like it's important that we also pay attention to that and acknowledge that. It actually happened to me um, on a night out we work, believe it or not. I was, um, I was, sexually harassed by, by a female an older female colleague so it, it does it does happen you can imagine uh, being asexual for, uh, for start I mean in general it's bad but for somebody who's not really accustomed to that anyway it was it was doubly quite intrusive if that makes sense so it's, it's interesting isn't it and I, th- I think something there was about and I can't speak for, for her personally but I think there's something about her that she thought that because I was a man that I, I would be quite excited by it if you get what I mean um, because obviously the stereotypical portrayals that were were full of testosterone and uh, and you know as i said before cavemen yeah um, yeah i mean i don't know how your situation was but i feel like especially if it happens in in workplace situations where there is some you said it was a a person a woman who was older than you and i think it also can happen in a lot of um, situations where one person is in a higher position of power like work-wise and so the like the victim just kind of accepts it because they don't want to lose their job or they think they won't believe because it's like the boss or like their supervisor who did this to them and yeah it's very important that um like companies have like a, a place where you can where you go to sexual harassment occurs on your workplace that is like completely neutral and has nothing um it's not involved in like the actual mm-hmm this company if you know what i mean absolutely like big companies that they have like okay in case of sexual harassment you can go to this like social worker and they don't know your boss anyway because it's a huge company with so many employees but for like smaller businesses or they were just like a small restaurant where there were like five or ten people work there where do you go to if this happens and you don't have there was one example i had of that and it happened while i was at university believe it or not and I was at a creative writing uh, poetry evening and one of the lecturers had had a little bit too much to drink does like his whiskey and I can remember him he literally came over to me and sat on my lap this was like typical behavior this this was something that he did occasionally but he actually not not to me but to other people and he actually said Cor you must be hard to fuck how do you have sex and I was just like what literally two lecturers had to pull him off <laughs> i think i i laugh but i laugh in horror you know rather than in shock you know I mean, I mean, 
I, I'm just astounded. And I think one thing, I don't know if you agree with this, Nina, as well, but one thing that really grinds my gears is when people go, oh, it's just typical Dave, that. it's just typical Bob, that's what Bob does. Do you know what I mean? Bob's like that. Bob, Bob, you know, no. This is not funny. No, it's not acceptable in, in any circumstance. And one thing I forgot to mention, by the way, before, and I think this is really important, just going back to rape, a lot of women and men are often stigmatised um, because they may actually orgasm during, during a sexual encounter. And I want to point out this is very poignant because this happens, this is but a normal a common response to trauma um where we can go into ourselves and that can happen that does not mean that a person is enjoying it as well i just wanted to put that out there because i actually meant to mention it and i forgot um, but that's absolutely poignant as well and um, we have to remember that as well the mm. way the body sort of takes over absolutely yeah mm. absolutely yeah it's a way um, for it to comprehend its station almost it is it is and moving forward do we want to talk about about how there are so many different effects that one can experience from oh. sexual violence and harassment you put together this list from brian and davis would you like to go through it yeah and again i want to point out that these this is there's no limitations on this and uh, brian and davis is very clear that there's only this is only some of the effects of experiencing sexual violence and harassment so most common is trauma a person can have eating disorders experience low self-esteem post-traumatic stress disorder depression anxiety agoraphobia suicidal ideation self-blame and they also this is something that a lot of people forget actually will also engage in further reckless behavior as well and i also think as well and i want to i wanted to point this out very quickly is that and i think this is very poignant because i've worked with them in the past and obviously my background in criminology prostitutes and escorts, porn and porn stars and just sex workers in general um, can also be the victims of rape and sexual harassment and assault non-penetratively as well. And that's all about understanding with consent and withdrawing consent as well. It's about payment. It's all, all those things factored in. So I think that's very important. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers the James Dean um, scandal, the porn star from a few years ago. Does anybody remember that? I, I don't. So James Dean, who was a pornographic actress, uh, actor, sorry, sexually assaulted many women on set and tried to pass it off because he was a porn star that that's what they'd signed up for. Okay. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge that there are some of these issues that people experience and this is why they end up talking about things and going to therapy. And therapy can help, I'm assuming that we, we're all of the same mind that therapy indeed does help when discussing these. If you don't mind me asking, Nina, did, did you find it did you find it helpful when, when you went when you went for that 10 week program? Uh, yes, definitely. It um I found yeah. it very helpful and um, I still go to therapy every day now. <laughs> like in a day I come I just go there for a couple of hours for different um programs. But I, I definitely found it helpful. And I think what I really want to mention at this point is that it's not to go to therapy for 10 weeks and you're healed. Yeah, no. <laughs> Still now telling me this has been like, what, like not eight, nine months since, um, since I got raped and people will tell me, oh, I never expected you to take so long to recover. And this is kind of, it's not, it's not a ladder that you climb up and once you're on top, you're healed. It's like, it's more like waves. I think, I think healing is not just one straight street. It's like an up and down. And yeah, for example, when I left the clinic last November, I felt a lot better. And then I had like bad episodes again in January because I still suffer from PTSD and I still get flashbacks. And yeah, I, I'm 
still suffering from depression and this is not something that goes away like this you know uh, just doesn't go away um suddenly yeah i think it's important for people who experience trauma themselves or who have to have people in their life who suffer from trauma or like went to therapy to understand that it can take as much time as as it takes and there is no like limitation to when you should be back to normal and when you should be fully recovered from it yeah, I completely agree with that. There, there's a saying that we never get over grief, but we learn to live around the grief. And as it being a kind of trauma, I suppose, that one learns to live with what has happened to, to one in their yeah. experience. It's like I always say, you know, you take a plate and smash it on the floor. You glue it back together. It's still a, pr- a plate, but it's got it's got cracks there. Yeah, I didn't want to sound like too depressing. It's no, 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 no. I, I think it's very real. Yeah, he, I mean, healing is possible, but it's not like yeah, oh. it will always be scars. But it, um, I, I don't say I'm fully there yet. But I have met people also in the clinic and also in my therapy program, and so I'm, I'm quite optimistic that I, I see that healing is possible and it's possible to heal a bigger sense of normality again and to not identify with the trauma as much as you might do now or as much as I might do now so just, just mention that. you don't you don't sound depressing at all Nina what, what I would say to you is is absolutely recovery is completely possible but the person is forever changed and that sometimes can and I'm not saying it's always a bad thing either I'm not saying that, the, that that obviously what happened is a bad thing completely but some people point to tremendous tremendous growth through that and, and, and look to that experience to see where they are now so obviously that's that's individual it doesn't speak for everybody I'm, I'm just saying that recovery is definitely possible but there is always changes for that sometimes for the better sometimes for the worse and that's 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 all we can do you know as humans yeah and i think it's also about accepting that you might not go back and be exactly the same person that you were yeah. and to accept that it's completely fine to miss parts of your older self because i definitely do miss old mina like i was before this happened and i definitely also found parts of new parts of myself now that i appreciate a lot and that i, I wasn't aware of of before this happened to me but it's also okay to be angry and grieve also about maybe certain parts of your personality or your characteristic that will never come back definitely is that i think that's the thing isn't it Nina? It's, it's almost kind of the you know one thing i would say from a theoretical perspective it's kind of it's a loss of an identity whilst also gaining a new one not maybe not one that you wanted but it's one that's almost thrust upon you if that makes any sense what i've just said there it does and i think for the listener one of the new parts of nina that she is presenting today because you can't see her i think it's really important to say that she's sitting behind a wall full of beautiful art and i think you were saying before we started the podcast that you you found art to be very healing is would you say that's correct yes definitely and it was quite unexpected for me because i I haven't painted or drawn since like middle school and when i went to the clinic program i uh, participated in art therapy at first i was not really um, happy about that because i thought i've never done that like i'm not creative I don't know how to do this but because it, it was in such a non-judgmental atmosphere I realized how extremely helpful it is for me and yeah, it's definitely it was during the clinic and it still is at this point in time in my life it's like one of my biggest source of like gaining energy and yeah where I just like feel completely calm and like completely safe when I paint and um, I feel like the verbal language is just limited and there are things thoughts or especially emotions that we just we cannot verbalize them it's not possible and I found that through painting and drawing, I can express this part of myself. And, and people, 
might when, when they see my my paintings they might feel something too that they cannot verbalize when they like want to give me feedback on the painting they might not be able to express what they are feeling but I think this is the, the beauty of, of art and yeah it, I, for me personally I just think painting is it for me but it can be like writing music like words like it doesn't always have to be like therapy in the form of sitting in a chair talking to a, like a therapist yeah this is really important and this is, people should do this but there are so many other therapeutic um, forms yeah. yeah and the thing is Nina as well one thing I'll say to you as a counsellor and as a therapist is therapy isn't always for everyone people don't always take to it and they don't always find it very useful and some people find their own way through using the exact exact measures you've just said then I think that's also very important to be acknowledged too and I think that leads us on to where to get help if one needs it I think there are many, many organisations, particularly in the UK, Women's Aid, Men's Aid, the NSPCC, Rape Crisis or Counselling Services. Um, I know that my colleague Helen has his own practice, uh, Evelyn Counselling, will happily support people who have gone through that. <laughs> He's looking at me as if to say, why, why mention me? Um, I mention you, Callum, because you're an incredibly kind individual. Um, I know that you have a good heart. <laughs> no, it's like Valentine's Day. Oh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Keep going. It's all good. I consent, I consent to that. that. That's fine. And also there's victimsupport.org and also the Survivors Trust. I'm sure Nina has a few examples of Switzerland's support services. So there is the, the general Opferhilfe. It depends on which region you live in Switzerland, but um, every canton has it. And um, they will help you with everything. Like they help you a lot uh, to get a lawyer to know about your rights, to get like medical attention. And they also, they might also help you to pay your bills because you will get a lot of bills when you like engage in a, in a legal process. But they also help you when you're not um, taking legal steps. They can help you to find a counsellor, they can help you to find a therapist, and they will also pay for your therapist. And there are also good services like Rauenberatung. It's in Zurich. You can just, it, it's for females only. This is uh, maybe the, not the best thing about it, but it's like you can go anonymous, you can, you can bring someone with you. I've been there as well, and they are really helpful there just for like free counselling. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. I highly um, recommend if you decide to go to the police or the hospital to contact uh, victim support first. I didn't do this because it was the middle of the night and I just called the police. But I felt, I don't know how the situation in England is about this, but here the police and the hospital staff, especially the forensic doctor, like they are not like, psychologically trained at all. And I, I found like this part, the, the police, like how the police treated me and especially how this forensic doctor treated me, extremely traumatizing. And so it might might be if you have the option if you have the time the energy the source whatever to um a victim support counseling first and bring someone with you i think i think that's a really valid point i mean in england they are have they do have obviously specially trained officers and they do have specially trained assistance with that at the hospital um but obviously as well I, th I think it's just a good thing Nina just to recommend that anyway because I think I think you can sometimes get an, I mean it's in, in rare circumstances and uh, you know particularly where we are but you still can get people who are, aren't great with that so I think regardless I think it's a good idea just to contact them anyway and um, particularly rape crisis I'd really recommend them and survivors because I think they're the leading ones in the UK for, for, for you know for that and I think more than anything if and again there's no obligation on you to seek help if you're going to it's there and you won't be alone with it and I'd also particularly recommend and the domestic violence helpline it's a, a national abuse helpline and the 
telephone number for that for anybody that needs it in the UK is 0808-2000-247. That is a support for women and children who've experienced any kind of domestic abuse. I know particularly in my work as a former customer service officer, we did refer a lot of individuals through to the domestic violence help. And it surprises me or saddens me even, surprises me and saddens me how many calls we got regarding domestic violence. And this topic is incredibly important and I can't begin to just express how thankful I am that I've got two brilliant people here who have openly discussed it today. I just want to say a massive thank you to you both. I always thank you, Callum, but particularly thanks to Nina for guesting. And I think that might be a good place to wrap it up. Is... No, thank you so much, Nina. We are we are so grateful and um, thank you for sharing your story with us. It's, it's, been, it's been an incredible learning curve for me as well. I'm always astounded and I do not mean this in what we were talking about before. I don't mean that in a way where you should feel responsibility. I mean, it's just purely from my own stuff. I'm always astounded by uh, the human resolve. I really am. Well, thank you for having me and I, I thank you for participating in, in conversations about this topic and for like, keeping up the fight of like not stigmatizing it. It's real cool. You're very good. As long as me and Craig draw breath, <laughs> that, will, that will happen, won't we, Craig? It, as long it, as will, it will not. Yeah, absolutely. It will never happen. Perhaps in future we could have you back to yeah. talk a bit more about art therapy and the experiences you've had. I know that we were planning to do an episode on art therapy, weren't we? Definitely. At some point. Or even on the feminism as well, Craig. That could be a good shout as well. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, um, we're both male, we're both male feminists, but there's only so far we can stretch with that, if that makes any sense. We always we, we as we said, you know, it's being feminist, you know, we need we need a woman on here as well. Absolutely. And we, we couldn't have spoken about this topic just between myself and Callum. We, we wouldn't have felt comfortable, would we? Just just between us. So your participation has been invaluable. So thank you so much. And uh, thank you, dear listener, if you're still with us. This concludes the seventh episode and we will see you next time. <laughs>